Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Esther. I'm going to read briefly this morning from Esther chapter 4. The easiest way to find Esther is to flip to your Bible and find the Psalms. That's that big chunk right in the middle. You can find the Psalms. And if you go back a few pages, you'll find Job. And just before that, you'll find Esther. In the middle of Esther, we learn here in chapter 4 of the great conflict that arises that Esther must address. But first, here in chapter 4, Esther must be persuaded to address the problem and the conflict. And we'll see here how Mordecai handles that job, that task of convincing Esther to take on the problem. Esther, chapter 4, and then we'll turn over to Acts, chapter 18. First, Esther, chapter 4. Hear now the word of the Lord. When Mordecai learned all that had happened, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city. He cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went as far as the front of the king's gate, for no one might enter the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. And in every province where the king's command and decree arrived, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. So Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her, and the queen was deeply distressed. Then she sent garments to clothe Mordecai and take his sackcloth away from him, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called Hathach, one of the king's eunuchs, whom he had appointed to attend her, And she gave him a command concerning Mordecai to learn what and why this was. Then Hathach went out to Mordecai in the city square that was in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries to destroy the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the written decree for their destruction, which was given at Sushan that he might show it to Esther and explain to her, and that he might command her to go into the king to make supplication to him and plead before him for her people. So Hathach returned and told Esther the words of Mordecai. Then Esther spoke to Hathach and gave him a command for Mordecai. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that any man or woman who goes into the inner court to the king, who has not been called, he has but one law, put all to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter, that he may live. Yet I myself have not been called to go into the king these thirty days. So they told Mordecai Esther's words. And Mordecai told them to answer Esther. Do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. For you, if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me. Neither eat nor drink for three days. 
night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise, and I will go to the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went his way and did according to all that Esther commanded him. Amen. There's a tremendous problem in front of the people of God. They are threatened with extermination. A man of great power and of great prosperity has wielded all his influence to secure the means to obliterate, to eliminate the covenant people. And Mordecai knows a savior must arise. Like a judge of old, like a king of old, like a type of Christ. One must come in the shadow, in the figure of Jesus, and rise up and save the church. And Mordecai thinks he's got the man for the job. Pun intended. He turns to Esther. You are the one to fulfill this likeness of Christ, to intervene for the people and to bring salvation. And she says, surely not. Such an attempt to save my people would result in my death. And Mordecai says, you're going to die anyway. You might as well die saving your people. Perhaps that is the purpose for which you have come to the kingdom. Mordecai is not offering this promise in verse 14 the way we like to in American evangelicalism. As a hope-filled promise of good things to come. Mordecai says, perhaps you were raised up to be queen in order to die for your people. Indeed, we find out in the book that that is not the case. But rather it is Christ who came to the kingdom at just the right time in order to die for his people. My friends, we have been offered the world's best news. That there is an indestructible kingdom. Mordecai is completely convinced that the Jews will survive this attack. The question is, who will do the saving? Likewise for us, my friends, when we turn to Acts chapter 18, we will be presented with the truth that Christ will build his church and Christ will advance his kingdom. Christ will save sinners. The question is, Will we participate? Will we be part of that work that will most certainly happen? With that question in our minds, let's turn over to Acts chapter 18. I'm going to read this morning verses 1 through 17, roughly the first half of this chapter. Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 17. This is Paul's time in Corinth. He is coming to the very end of his second missionary journey. He has completed his first missionary journey, returning to Antioch for a little R&R. That will come up later, again, in the second half of this chapter. But first, we have here his final stop on the missionary journey in which he spends time in Corinth. Having made his way through Macedonia, that is northern Greece, he's come down through Athens into the very tip of southern Greece. And we read here this morning of his experience there in Corinth. Acts chapter 18. Let's begin with verse 1. Here again the word of the Lord. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, 
born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome, and he came to them. So, because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for by occupation they were tent makers. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. But when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshipped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed and were baptized. Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. Do not be afraid, but speak, and do not keep silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. And he continued there for a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. When Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, The Jews, with one accord, rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat, saying, This fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. And when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O Jews, there would be reason why I should bear with you. But if it is a question of words and names in your own law, look to it yourselves. For I do not want to be judge of such matters. And he drove them from the judgment seat. Then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. But Gallio took no notice of these things. Amen. And amen. Well, maybe many of you have noticed the big change this week. I certainly have noticed. The sun is with us longer. It's warmer. Spring is in the air. I was overcome with the sensation, with the enthusiasm for spring this last week, and I got on my bike, and I went for a big ride outside. It was great to soak the vitamin D into my skin, to pedal mile after mile. I went out into what I affectionately call Kim country. That's the land west of here where you can find Jeff and Rosie Kim. That's Wayland and out as far as Maynard and out through Lincoln and Lexington and Bedford. I was up and down, back and forth, mostly just getting lost, trying to find my way back to Cambridge. Hill after hill, I would pedal up until at last I began to feel what every cyclist knows, the approach of what they affectionately call the bonk. It's where you have used up all the sugar in your body. And your muscles are burning and aching and sore, and you desperately want to eat everything in sight. Thankfully, I was well armed. I had in one pocket my granola bar, my peanuts, and my raisins. I had in my other pocket little mandarin oranges. 
So as I descended the last hill that I had barely made up, breathless and exhausted, I pulled out my little mandarin orange and pulled off the peel and began to eat it. By the time my hands were sticky and juicy and my stomach was full of mandarin orange, I came to the next hill, which I attacked with all the fury of that delicious sugar that was now surging through my body. You see, friends, our bodies need food to keep going. But likewise, our souls need grace to keep going. The energy and the vitality of our faith is sustained by the grace and goodness of God. The ability to keep going rests in our partaking of the love of God in Christ. And so I have good news for you this morning. According to Acts chapter 18, Jesus has provided everything you need to keep going. Jesus gives you everything you need to keep going. This endurance sport that we call the Christian life, this marathon that we call Christian ministry, is an exhausting one. And yet, friends, in Christ is all the refreshment and renewal you need. With this in mind, let's look at our text. Begin in verse 1. We see that after these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. Luke, in this one verse, records a journey that was for Paul a tremendous life-changing moment, and Luke passes it up. As a simple historian fixed on other points, Luke misses deliberately what is happening in those few words. You see, Paul passes out of Athens and into Corinth at the tail end of his second missionary journey. And Paul is exhausted. And he is coming into a new city in which he has no friends, in which he has no landing pad from which he can base his new church planting adventure. He is going alone His ministry team has dissolved behind him, one after the other being left in the cities that are behind him. Paul is exhausted at the end of his journey. Paul is ready to rest, and yet here he is taking up a new adventure. Paul is alone with none of his ministry partners around him. Paul is in a desperate strait, and he is facing a great metropolitan challenge. You see, Corinth is a city of renown by this time. There is a long history behind it, full of prestige and great stories. It has become the capital of Greece under the Roman Empire. That's why the proconsul Gallio is living there. It has become this place of political power, but it is also one of great wealth. You see, Corinth sits on an isthmus, a thin strip of land with water on two sides. To the east of Corinth is the port that opens up the Middle East and Asia. To the west is the port that opens up the world to North Africa and Europe. It is the hub of the Roman universe. It is the place that all the ships of the Mediterranean Sea come and go. And as a result, it is a very wealthy and well-to-do city. But it is also a very diverse city. With profound disease and poverty. And with great depravity. 
a city of tremendous immorality. Corinth was known throughout the Roman Empire for two things, international business and prostitution. The great sexual immorality ravaged and stalked its cities even as its ships filled its harbors. Corinth was a daunting place to plant a new church, much like Boston. A city of political power in which much government was found. A city of great international business in which much trade was found. And a city of great sin in which great wickedness was found. In the face of this overwhelming challenge, Paul arrives alone and exhausted, indeed in his own words. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he tells the Corinthians, I came to you with much weakness, fear, and trembling. Perhaps this sounds familiar. Perhaps some of us can relate to Paul. And we look at a city like Boston with its international business, its political power, its wealth, and we say we are not up for the job. This little congregation has not the strength to handle such a city as this. Perhaps we feel, as Paul did, the weakness, the fear, and the timidity that rightly befits our situation and the challenge before us. Perhaps many of us, friends, this morning look at the challenge of raising up deacons and elders, and we look at our fellow members and we think, there is much weakness, fear, and trembling. We are not the congregation well-equipped that we need to be to fill those offices. Perhaps, friends, as we look around, we only see weakness, fear, and trembling, and think we cannot do this. Whether church planting or raising up officers, maybe we look at our evangelistic efforts, our mercy ministries, our discipleship, and we say, wow, I see weakness, fear, and trembling. Maybe some of you are not even looking at the congregation. Maybe you can't get out of your own house. And you look at your marriage. You look at your children. You look at your parents and you think, wow, I see weakness, fear, and trembling. We're not up for the job. We can't compete with our sins. We cannot keep pace with our sorrows. Perhaps you can't get out of your own head. And you look at the sorrows and the sins that are not only all around you in this city, not only all around you in this congregation, not only around you in your home, you look at the sins and sorrows that are within you, and you see much fear, weakness, and trembling. Paul was not a superhero, Paul was not a super apostle. Paul was a weak and wounded man limping into the city of Corinth. In our modern day language, we might actually say he was suffering from depression or perhaps even PTSD. He had been violently driven out of every city he had ever preached in. Do not pretend for a moment being violently thrown out of a city again and again and again does not take its toll. With deep emotional and psychological scars, he appears before the walls of Corinth, weak, fearful, and trembling, entirely inadequate for the responsibility about to come upon him. 
And my friends, many of us can feel the exact same way about the challenges in front of us. I know I do. I know that as your pastor, and I speak for your elders and your deacons when I say that we serve you with much weakness, fear, and trembling. And there is nothing like a pandemic to convince us we are not sufficient for these things. And yet, my friends, the text before us is one of rich grace, of sufficient love, of overwhelming kindness and encouragement to a much dispirited people, that if we this day should own honestly that we are a weak, fearful, and trembling people, then here is a gospel for us with strength, courage, and confidence. It teaches us that Jesus provides everything we need. The text shows us four things that Jesus provides for such a people. First, he provides partnerships. You see, in verse 2, Paul is handed a partnership Two people who will be essential to helping him establish the ministry and the church plant in Corinth. They are Priscilla and Aquila. A couple who is frankly most unlikely to serve this role. Aquila and Priscilla are tent makers. This is not a money making operation. The margins on this business are not very good. These are not wealthy people. To make matters worse, not only are they not in a very lucrative business, they are refugees. Originally from Asia Minor, they are living in Corinth, that is Greece, having come by way of Rome. That is, they are homeless. This is like Paul taking up a rental place in South Boston with a bunch of African migrants who showed up six months ago, fleeing from persecution. This isn't an economically stable couple. This isn't a place of strength, a partnership that speaks of stability and power. These are refugees running from Rome who have come to find help in Corinth themselves. Paul goes and he lives with them and he works with them. And from this little tiny partnership... He finds the strength, the encouragement, the wealth, the food, the housing, the things that he needs in order in verse 4 to begin reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath. To begin persuading both Jews and Greeks. Priscilla and Quilla have almost nothing to offer Paul as recent migrants into the city of Corinth, but they have just enough. A spare bed and a little bit of food. And with this hospitality, feeble though it is, impoverished though it is, it is the mustard seed necessary for faith to launch into the city of Corinth. And Sabbath by Sabbath, the gospel is preached. Christ is reasoned and Jews and Greeks both are persuaded and brought to saving faith. From this little partnership comes profound ministry. My friends, we easily despise the day of small things. We are, after all, Americans. We love big businesses. We love heroes and great success. 
And yet Jesus, more often than not, wins his wars with his pawns and foot soldiers. He is a master at handling all of this world's problems with what we call weak and foolish. This is indeed in which his strength and power shines forth. In such a small partnership as this, it was but hospitality among three lonely refugees that indeed the ministry began. We may look around and say we are not much, but let us look around and see that Christ has given us much. In these pews and at home on those couches are the saints we need to fill a deacon board and a session. Christ has given us the ones that we should not think little of. The ones we should believe Jesus is at work in this heart and in this life. We should believe in his power of sanctification. We should believe in his provision of partnership that he has put into this congregation the people he intends to build his kingdom with. You and me. We may think little of ourselves. We may think little of one another. But let us not be deceived. Jesus thinks much. Jesus expects much. Jesus knows the partnerships that are existing in this church. And he intends to build his church and advance his kingdom through those partnerships. What is more, he adds to it a new partnership in verse 5. Silas and Timothy are added to the, fe- excuse me, the fellowship coming from Macedonia in verse 5 with a financial gift that frees Paul from his business. Having been a full-time co-worker with Priscilla and Aquila, Paul at last now, thanks to Silas and Timothy, has the financial reserve that he needs to go full-time into evangelism. We know this because Paul specifically says it in his letter to the Philippians and in his letter to the Corinthians. Twice, in two different letters, he specifically mentions that Silas and Timothy brought with them a gift from Macedonia. The Philippian church and the other churches there had thrown money into a bag into the hands of Silas and Timothy that Paul could be a full-time evangelist and church planter in that city. With the coins in his pocket, he goes forth. Notice what he says, Luke says in verse 5 compelled by the Spirit, or perhaps compelled in His Spirit to testify to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. Notice what Luke has done with such a phrase. He has equated partnership with Aquila and Priscilla, partnership with Silas and Timothy, with the compulsion of the Holy Spirit. Have you ever felt that? Have you ever felt that sense of accountability? That your brothers and sisters are praying for you. That your brothers and sisters are asking about you. And that the pressure of their friendship is on you in a compelling way. I remember asking time and again people to pray for the lost. And then when I would see that person, I would feel the compulsion of those prayers. Oh man, the saints have been praying for this person. Let's speak the gospel. Let us be ready to offer the gospel. 
My friends, we have a compulsion from the Spirit that is born of our partnerships with one another. That just as the brothers and sisters come together to encourage and hold accountable one another, so as we come together, friends, the Spirit works within us to compel us to speak and to speak boldly. Paul has come to Corinth weak, fearful, and trembling. But Jesus has given him people, partnerships, through which he is strengthened and encouraged to do the work wonderfully in that city. But Paul then finds himself in need of something more. You see, by going from Sabbath day preaching, which was just a small amount of annoyance, just like the mosquito in the ear, by switching over to everyday preaching in the synagogue, by multiplying his sermons from once a week to seven times a week, the mosquito got really loud and the synagogue wants to swat him. We see there in verse 6, they oppose him and indeed they blaspheme God. They oppose him with such vigor that they begin to even curse the name of Christ and to slander the living God who has revealed his word to them. Paul, knowing that this has cut him off from their pulpit, knowing that the door has slammed shut in his face, knows he must seek a new opportunity. For even as Jesus provides us with partnerships, he provides us also with opportunities. They just often don't look the way we want them to. He provides us with these small partnerships, these little friendships on which our ministry can thrive. But he also provides us little opportunities, small doors that open to us and we so easily miss them. You see, like many of us, Paul has the door slammed in his face. The synagogue is closed. The pulpit is shut. He cannot there preach any longer. And if you're anything like me, you would have spent most of your time moping, fussing and whining about how the door was closed crying over the lost opportunity. But not Paul. He shakes his garments, a sign of judgment. I am innocent. I am clean. Your blood be on your own heads. Your dust be on your own floor. I am done. And in verse 7, he goes next door. He doesn't go far. He goes next door. The commentators were divided on whether this is a poke in the eye to the synagogue or whether this was a kindness to them. I don't know. I just know that he doesn't miss a beat. He doesn't fall into a puddle of despair and of depression. He doesn't curl up into a ball and begin to cry. Paul rather goes to where the open door is to be found. He goes to the opportunity where justice has opened his living room for worship. Some manuscripts call him Titius Justice or Titus Justice, uh, some scholars believe that this is the Gaius who Paul baptized, according to 1 Corinthians 1. Either way, he's clearly Roman. This is a Gentile's house. And into that house, the God-fearer's house, worship and the church plant begin. Crispus, a ruler of the synagogue, one of power and position in the synagogue, believes with all his household. And he is added to the number. 
In 1 Corinthians 1, Paul speaks of baptizing Crispus. Likely at this time, he also baptizes Stephanus' household, who comes into the church. Many Corinthians, it says in verse 8, hear, believe, and are baptized. Notice the rhythm of the ministry life. They hear the good news, they believe the good news, and they enter into the life of discipleship. The opportunity to bring people into the church by baptism is there. Though the synagogue is shut tight, the church is not. Though the pulpit is sealed off to him, the kingdom is wide open. Jesus has, as he promised to his church in Revelation, placed before us an open door that no one can shut. Friends, he gives opportunities to his church that we should by faith take them. But notice how small they can be. Notice how difficult to discern they can be. It's just Justice's living room. It's not much. It's like a partnership with refugees from Rome. It's like a partnership with Silas and Timothy. It's really small in and of itself. But from those little few friendships flourish the Corinthian church. And indeed, from this little house, Justice's living room, is born the Corinthian church. In fact, I submit to you as you search throughout church history, this is Jesus' normal pattern. How was the church in Philippi begun? A prayer meeting with a handful of women down by the river. How was the church in Jerusalem begun? Twelve guys and some ladies in an upper room in a prayer meeting. I've referred often to Jack Miller who has planted churches, dozens of churches, on three different continents. The first one he ever planted was in Philadelphia. It started with a Sabbath afternoon prayer meeting in his living room. Because that's how Jesus works. A handful of people in prayer in a house. A little bit of hospitality goes an awful, awful long way. These are the tiny opportunities that lead to a flourishing evangelism. These are the tiny opportunities that lead to a thriving discipleship. These are the little things, the little seeds of life that we think nothing of. And yet they are the quiet conversations by which the kingdom comes in such power and glory. My friends, he is pleased to win with pawns. He is pleased to use small friendships and little living rooms. He builds churches in such ways and advances his kingdom in such ways. Not only does he provide us, though, with these little partnerships, with these little opportunities, he provides us with great big promises. You see, Paul is in the habit of bouncing from city to city. We've seen that in the first missionary journey. We see that in the second missionary journey. Paul, having found that open door, having preached that gospel, having baptized those church members, having established a church and gather around him some leaders, Priscilla, Aquila, Silas, and Timothy, having established the church plant, is now apt to move on. He is now likely to move on. 
But the Lord himself intervenes in verse 9 and grants him a vision in the night that tells him to stay. This is something of a, of a great moment in Paul's life. Remember, this isn't tremendously common in that, that time. It's, it's far less common for us. But even Paul only had this happen three times in his life. On the road to Damascus, he went up to destroy the church. And Jesus showed himself to him and said, no, you're not going to destroy the church. You're going to build it. Secondly, when Paul was on the road to Asia, Jesus appeared to him in a vision in the night and said to him, no, you're not going to Asia. You're going to Macedonia. And here now, for the third time, Paul is on the road to depart from Corinth, as is his custom. But Jesus appears to him in a vision and says, no, you're going to stay here. He gives him three commands. Do not be afraid. Speak and do not be silent. With a bold speech, Paul is to remain and to advance the work of the church in Corinth. This is the command and call of Christ upon him. It reminds me of the advice that Mark Daver gave the first summer that I moved here almost four years ago. He was passing through town. He rallied about 30 different pastors. And by the good grace of Kyle Finley and his access to Twitter, I found myself invited into the group, the Lone Reformed Presbyterian, surrounded by 29 Baptists. And as we sat and talked about pastoral ministry, Mike De- Mark Deaver gave me this counsel, being in my first month of ministry here. You're really going to like it, trust me. He said there's four things a man should do in his pa- pastoral ministry. He should love and pray. He should preach and he should stay. Yes? Love, pray, preach, stay. This is the counsel that Christ, indeed the command that Christ gives to Paul in this vision. Paul, I want you to love these Corinthians. I want you to preach to these Corinthians. Speak. Be not silent. Be bold. I want you to pray for these Corinthians and I want you to stay with these Corinthians. For a man who is usually moving every four to six to eight weeks, staying for a year and a half is a tremendous commitment. And yet God gives to Paul three reasons why he should stay. Three precious promises. Three giant promises that make much of his small partnerships and his small opportunities. First, verse 10, for I am with you. This is the promise to end all promises. This is the promise that begins the church in the Old Testament. When he came to Abraham and he said, Abraham, Abraham, I will be your God and you will be my people. This is the promise that ends the church in Revelation. When they stand before the Lamb in glory and he says to them, I am your God and you are my This is the great Emmanuel promise. Paul, stay in Corinth because I am with you. It is the cornerstone of the Great Commission in which Christ says to us, going into all the world, make disciples by baptizing and teaching. And lo, 
I am with you, even to the very end of the age. My friends, we have a God who is with us. His presence is what makes our little partnerships powerful, which makes our little opportunities productive. How do we make much of the little strength that we have? Easy. We delight in the presence of our God. We drink deep of his love and his fellowship. We spend much time in his word and in his prayer, partaking of his sacraments. We witness the strength of his grace to one another in our daily conversation. We refresh each other with words of love and acts of service. And in so doing, we manifest and build up the body of Christ in that presence of God. Secondly, he promises, no one will attack you to hurt you. Now, of course, in the very next verse, two verses later, we see an attack on Paul. So God here is clearly not promising a bed of roses. He's clearly not promising an easy life or a peaceful way forward. He's promising success. He's promising endurance. He's promising the strength to get through the attack. He's promising that the attack will not thwart the work of the ministry. That the kingdom will go forward. The church will be built up. They will attack you, Paul, but they will not win. It is on this promise we can take such hope. I referred previously to a book on evangelism that basically has as its premise, when you do evangelism, you're going to get hurt. The solution isn't to find evangelism that won't hurt you. The solution is to not be afraid. This is the way the gospel works. We believe in the power of the grace of God. Not such that we would avoid pain or be pain free. But rather that the pain would be profitable to the sanctification of our souls and the saving of others. Thirdly, he promises most sweetly and richly, for I have many people in this city. Election is the foundation of evangelism. Pardon the theological jargon, but as a Calvinist, I cannot resist. It is the predestination of God's election that grounds and supports and inspires evangelism. God has declared, I have people in this city. They are mine. And they will come to saving faith. The question is, will we bring them or will someone else? The question is, will he use us or will he use donkeys and gophers? That is to say, whatever means he has chosen and foreordained. My friends, Jesus' gospel will go forward into Boston It will go forward into our homes. The question is, will we share in that work? Will we believe he is with us? Will we believe that he will bless us? Will we believe that these small friendships, that these small partnerships are capable of tremendous ministry? Will we believe that these small opportunities are indeed the very mustard seed from which the kingdom grows? Will we believe that it is the promise of God that gives to us in our weakness the strength of God. Will we believe that what he has sworn he himself will do? 
That he will build this church. That he will take this city captive. That he will have a kingdom. And this city shall be part of it. It shall be once a kingdom of this world, but very soon the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Paul, believing that the promise of God is in itself the power of God, stays. Isn't that remarkable? He stays. What is the fruit of faith? Endurance. Hebrews chapter 11 and 12. To persist. To persist in discipling one another. To persist in evangelizing the lost. To persist in coming together to pray for these things. And to believe that the one who is promised is able and willing to deliver on the promise. We see then at the end, the manifestation of all these things come together in the protection of Paul before the proconsul of Greece. You see, after a year and a half, the Jews believe they at last have an open door, an opportunity by which to seize Paul and to put an end to this 18-month nightmare by which he has bled from their synagogue wealth in man and money, and which he has gathered within the living room of justice, both Jews and Greeks, reconciling them together by the gospel of Jesus Christ. They see that Gallio has come. Gallio is the son of the famous Senator Seneca. He is the brother of the famous Senator Seneca. He is a Stoic, and he is an anti-Semite. He hates Jews. And the Jews believe that they have a door of opportunity here. They bring Paul before the judgment seat in the marketplace where Gallio is there, robed in purple, sitting like a Roman over these Jews. And they set before him Paul and cry out, This fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. It's a clever accusation. They don't say whose law. If they were to say this is contrary to the Jewish law, Gallio would immediately dismiss the case and say, I don't care about the Jewish law, I'm a Roman. But they say it's contrary to the law, leaving it vague and nebulous, hinting that perhaps what's going on here is Paul has brought in an illegal religion. You see, Rome does not have the First Amendment. Rome does not believe in the freedom of religion. Rome believes that you can practice whatever religion they give you permission to practice. And so the argument here is that Paul has not been given permission to practice this new Christian religion. Before Paul even opens his mouth, Gallio dismisses the case. Verse 14, hey, if this guy was a troublemaker, if, he, if this was some sort of crime or wrongdoing, then I would bear with you. Notice how much he hates the Jews. He has no inclination of giving them justice. I would put up with you. I would tolerate the sound of your voice in my courtroom if there was a real crime here. But since you're just whining and complaining about names, he calls him the Christ. You say he's not the Christ. You call him the Messiah. He says, you, he says it's the Messiah. You say it's not. That's not my business. I'm not going to deal with it. Through the indifference and ignorance of Gallio, 
Paul is preserved. Do you see the power of Christ? Who is capable to raise up a wicked, sinful government and yet use them to build his church and to keep safe his church. Gallio is no hero here. Gallio is no champion of religious liberty. Gallio is an ignorant, indifferent judge who just wants the problem off his docket. And through such wicked means, though the Jews mean it for evil, though Gallio means it for evil, Jesus accomplishes much good. Unwittingly and unbeknownst to them, they establish in this verse a legal precedent that will be preserved later in Acts. Roman indifference to the the Christian Jewish fight. This becomes legal precedent on which Paul can base later defense. My friends, Jesus knows how to use this world to build his kingdom. He is a master at what he does, king and head of his church. Secondly, he can use these providential means he has given, illustrated for us in verse 16 and 17. He drives out from the judgment seat these complaining peoples. And as he does, the Greeks lose their temper. And they turn on Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue. We're not quite sure why Sosthenes is targeted. Perhaps as ruler of the synagogue, he is the spokesman, the one who speaks on behalf of the synagogue. And having failed to represent the Jewish case well, they turn on him and beat him before the seed of Gallio. And Gallio ignores it. He is indifferent. He cares not. He lets the violence and the bloodshed spill out as Sosthenes is beaten in the mob's rage. Why do they not beat Paul? Why do they not assault Paul? Because Paul is a Roman citizen. And Corinth is not about to make the same mistake that Philippi made. You do not attack a Roman citizen in the presence of a Roman judge. There are armed Roman soldiers waiting to take your life if you dare. Paul is safe. So sweet, is it not? To see that all the enemies of God ring round him. And they slander him and they bring threats upon him. And they cannot touch him. The door is opened and no one can shut it. The partnerships are there and they cannot be broken. The gospel will go forth. The church will be built up. The kingdom will advance. Jesus has provided everything they need to do the work. Let me give you one last gem from the text. This guy, Sosthenes, makes one other appearance in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, to the church in Corinth, And Sosthenes, our brother. Because, my friends, you cannot stop the gospel. Sosthenes, beaten on this day, twice in the courtroom of Gallio and in the streets of Corinth, found victory in Christ and became what Paul would call our brother. We have a Savior who saves sinners. 
We have a gospel full of grace and glory. We have within our fellowship all that we need to see Christ build his church and advance his kingdom. Because we have Christ. And Christ is all that we need. We have in Jesus the full provision. The people, the opportunities, the promises, the power, the protection. And we see clearly, my friends, I hope you see clearly, that if you have Christ, you have everything you need to be his church and to build his church. Dear friends, Jesus has given us everything you need to keep going. So keep going. So go to him for encouragement. So be much encouraged today. In Jesus, you have everything you need. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for this beautiful day. We give you thanks for the creation so full of glory. We give you thanks for the creator revealed to us in Christ, beautiful and glorious. We give you thanks for this sweet text in which you have made known to us that we have what we need in Christ. And Father, forgive us. For we, O God, are truly a weak and fearful and trembling people. Father, we acknowledge we are not sufficient for the sins and sorrows within us or around us. Father, we cannot take this city. Father, we cannot build this church. Father, we cannot sanctify ourselves. And yet we give you thanks that we have Jesus. That he will sanctify us. That he will build us. That he will add to us. That he has indeed overcome the world. And in him we are more than conquerors. We give you thanks for this good news today. And pray that it would reshape how we think about the world around us. And it would shape and reshape how we think about ourselves. That it would transform our feelings of fear into feelings of courage. That it would reshape indeed the weakness. And we would see it as an opportunity to show the strength of God in Christ. Oh God, give grace that we today would be much encouraged by the good news that we have heard today. For these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.